Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an 8th generation Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Dell Cinema Technology makes whatever you love to watch even better. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com XPS 13. Sponsored by Dell and Intel. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. The flagship rewards credit card offers three times points on all travel purchases and two times points on everything else. Three times the points on travel means getting rewarded while road tripping or even when just commuting to work. You'll also get other benefits like a statement credit for global entry and TSA pre-check of up to $100, 24-7 stateside member support, and access to Navy Federal's online shopping center. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org slash flagship for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have no distinct role at TheRinger.com. Joining me on the other line live from Aramingo Avenue... It's Chris Ryan. Hey, buddy. What's up, man? How are you? I'm not. Did you bra- even say my name? I said your name, but I said it kind of, I went low. You know, when you go high, I go low. I do the reverse <laughs> Michelle Obama. Oh, so you're like, uh, this is like the Mitch McConnell holding a gold brick of yeah. podcast hosting jobs you're doing. Listen, listen, I may not be good at dinner parties, but I get my judicial appointments through. Um, what's up, man? So I made an early morning trip to Aramingo <laughs> Avenue. I'm full of the spirit of Philadelphia. Nick Foles is back in my life. Um, and we're here. We're doing, we got this show today. We're doing our uh, annual, we'll do the wall on Thursday, which is our, our people of the year podcast, right? And then we'll do a mailbag for the episode after Christmas. Look, Kaya and I are here in the studio in Los Angeles just looking at each other because a minute ago before we recorded, everyone's like, Look, Andy, like, it's on you. You're in studio today. You're going to have to host this show. And I was like, okay, Chris, I accept the mantle. Not 30 seconds into it, I make a judicial appointments joke, and all of a sudden you're hosting. You can't help it. You are a natural. I was born to host. I was born to host. What's going on with you? (laughs) I'm 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 just gobsmacked here. I was ready to really run point on this show with all the topics pop cultural topics we have to talk about today. I, I don't know. I'm not used to being in this power position with you, buddy. I don't know what to do with myself. I miss you. Well, I'll tell a couple of anecdotes while you, well, to vamp while you try and think of ways to segue into uh, Roma, which we're going to talk about yeah. today. And we're also going to talk about some of the stuff during the holidays that we're going to try and catch up on that we missed in 2018, because there's nothing, nothing people come to the watch for more than us talking about things we haven't watched yet. Well, no, I, but, I, I, uh, here, here's my thought. We could have done... A Mia Culpa. I could have done a whole week's worth of Mia Culpa episodes about things we missed. But I think there's a version of this, and I'm pitching to you live on the air, where we pay it forward. Because I think that many people have some time off. And even if they don't have a ton of time off, they may want to escape their families. And so I think that this might be an opportunity to talk about things that we would like to engage with. Aspirational things. Things maybe that are coming out in the next few weeks or things that we know we missed, we've been reminded about. So we're going to pay it forward. We're going to talk about things that we'd like to see and why. And maybe because we are also soliciting uh, uh, tweets and whatever's for a mailbag episode, maybe people can throw some stuff on there that they think we should check out also, or things that they themselves are going to make, are going to uh, finally see through or see in the spirit of giving. 
Yeah, absolutely. In the meantime, let me just tell you really quickly about my flight uh, to Philadelphia. Can I do that? I, I love hearing about this because for years I've entertained you with my airplane movie stories. So what was this like for you? You have a whole different, by the way, people don't realize this. You have a whole different strategy and approach to travel than I do. You don't leave hours before the sun <laughs> rises. You were leaving at a very reasonable time. No, I love the 2.30 flight, you know what I mean? Because it's just like you get up, you have a little breakfast, got a bagel from Friedman's, kind of flipped through the, the net, checked some of my bookmarks, and then I, I, I went out to LAX and flew to Philadelphia on the 2.30 flight. Um, I guess, you know, just to be fair, I won't name the airline, but let's just say there were no movies on this airline, unless you consider humanity a, a movie <laughs> unto itself, right? And I uh, paid a little extra scratch for an exit row because your boy likes to stretch out, you know? When, Chris, he's, uh, when they come down the aisle and they look you in the eye and they're like, are you prepared to save lives on this flight should shit go sideways? What do you do? Do you lock eyes and you I nod? I reciting dialogue from the Denzel Washington classic flight. <laughs> I say, what's the name of your son? Tell Trevor you love him into the black box. I usually get in a little bit of trouble with the TSA when I do that. But um, I was on the plane and, you know, there was, you ever have that moment when you're on the plane and there's that brief, brief second where you might not have someone sitting next to you? Oh, it's so beautiful. But it actually makes you more anxious because yeah. you're like, I do I karmically deserve this? And yes. it almost makes when someone does sit next to you 10 times worse. Yes. I think that's exactly well, right. Well, that was compounded by the fact that the guy who did sit next <laughs> to me, and you know, in the end, I feel like we can say we were friends. We shared a lot. <laughs> wow. uh, you know, he this guy comes on uh, and he sits down next to me. And he seems, he really, really needs water. He's like, excuse me, may, may I please have a water to the, to the flight attendant. And she's just like, you know, we're still getting people on the plane here, but I'll hook you up in a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not a few minutes later, she comes back with a full cup of Dasani. Lovely. My boy <laughs> proceeds to crush three NyQuil's in pill form. Okay. That's and then okay. while in this dripped out NyQuil haze, Somehow still ingests a bag of peanut M&Ms, like, uh, while asleep, but he's just, like, every 30 seconds just, like, pours more M&Ms into his mouth, and then passes out while listening to Takashi 6 9 somewhat on my shoulder, but, you know, we're all flying to Philadelphia, so we're all family. And then he wakes up for food service, where he asks the drink cart, what do you guys have? <laughs> what, what kind of answer do you think he was expecting? <laughs> exactly what the, the the flight attendant said she was like what do you mean what do I, have? <laughs> I got drinks it's a fucking drink cart and he was like i i couldn't tell where he was going but i felt like i needed to step in so yeah. i just sort of leaned forward and handed him the menu <laughs> for the, you know for the inflate were, were you lightly fingering the menu the whole time were you just browsing your <laughs> options you're like god i you know do i do i get the southwest turkey breakfast wrap or the southwest turkey club sandwich where they swap out the bread at noon like so many choices for for a young man experiencing You're laughing, air travel. But I had the chicken and yeah, artichoke wrap. I know you so well. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> wow. So, did he appreciate, in the spirit of the city of brotherly love and all, did he appreciate your sort of micromanaging the situation? You know what he said to me. I can't wait. He said, "Appreciate you." That's beautiful.
That's really. And then he got a coconut of can of Pringles and he went back to sleep. That was my flight. Wait, I, I got a couple things here. Now, I, I, I got to speak up for people who have, whether intentionally or not, ingested medication that may make you a little bit drowsy. Because we used to have a whole thing where we would say, you know, like like if this happened when we were visiting our families, as you are, and maybe maybe we needed maybe we needed to sleep, maybe we need a little Nyquil or or, or a sleeping aid. That the telltale sign of of taking one of these pills would that you would be you would wake up covered in crumb like amoroso hot dog bun crumbs, like <laughs> like like over the counter sleep aids make make people like unnaturally hungry. Like I think that is a yeah. normal normal reaction. So you can't blame a dude. Also, he knew, I'm standing up for my guy here. He knew there were no screens on this flight. This flight to Philadelphia, the afternoon flight that you choose is like a child who is two years old or under in my home. No screen time. No screen yeah. time. It's an interesting experience. You know, everybody's got, and, but the thing is, is that like, you know, everybody has their, their iPads and stuff out. So they're, they're keeping entertained. This guy was definitely entertained by the music with Takashi 69. I was reading some, uh, Jonathan Coe. That's so you know, on brand. A, That's so on. A rollicking send up of, of Thatcher era Britain. <laughs> um, so we were, we were just all having a, a great time on the flight. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be home. I have a follow up. Do you think the story you just told me and the listeners, do you think that Nick Foles could tell the same story about Carson Wentz sitting next to him on the flight home from last night's game? Do you think Carson Wentz, midway home with a fully broken back, was like, hi, what drinks do you have? Yeah, do you guys have drinks? Do you guys have drinks? I have a terrible punishing thirst. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, he was also like, I have these 11 NyQuil's I'm taking for my spine. For my broken spine that the team doctor gave me. Wow. Well, to go from, well, actually, you know what? Here's your segue, Chris. What you just told us has the the beauty, the purity, and the poetry of real life, as does Alfonso Cuarón's masterpiece, Roma. What do you think about that? <laughs> life, life is the details. And yeah. what I want to do is talk about this movie with you, and I want to talk about it in two stages, okay? First, I think we should talk about why people should see it and how they should see it and what it is, in case they're not familiar. And then... Perhaps Kaya could uh, shoot off the air horn that I see on her desk to signify the second portion of the conversation because we should talk about it in detail. Um, but I feel like it's too new. It was in theaters for a short time in limited release and it is on Netflix now. Um, and I, I want to be able to talk about it generally before we spoil it so people can engage and then, and then tap back out and then tap back in for our holiday wish list. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that sounds great. So... The first thing to say about this movie, which is Cuaron's uh, most personal film to date, uh, a labor of love, a follow-up to Gravity, uh, you could all watch it on your phone right now. Please don't. Please don't. This is the, this is the hill that I'm sketching out for this conversation. Please go f- see it in the theater because I know, I know, listen, I know. I know what it sounds like for me of all people to be saying this. And if it's not playing in a theater near you, or if you have children under the age of 10 months and you don't have a babysitter, okay, fine. But this is as good as it gets, in my, in my, in my opinion, in my extremely limited cinematic experience and opinion. This was like the most pure cinema, the most beautiful, moving film that I can remember seeing in quite some time. And 
I am so grateful that I saw it in a theater, both because the sound was amazing and it was beautiful and it was overwhelming. The images are just stunning. But also because it is a movie that asks something of you in a way that that a lot of great films do. And I think it asks things of you as a, in terms of patience, in terms of what you can tolerate, in terms of what you're focusing on, that if you had a second screen in front of you, if you could go to the bathroom, if you just wanted to grab a couple more Doritos from your own personal snack cart, uh, you will interrupt the experience. And I know this sounds so old-fashioned and judgy, but I, I don't want that experience interrupted for you, people of America. I don't. Yeah, I would say that as a um, amendment to your bill, as you, you being the Mitch McConnell of pop culture, you know it. I would just throw an amendment on there, which is like, look, if you can't go see it in the theaters, here's what I would do to, to echo Andy's sentiments, is to treat it like a night at the movie theater. So do you have a homeboy or a homegirl who has a giant TV? Mm-hmm. Do you, you, like, instead of making it a casual thing that you throw on on your laptop or that you, like, watch 20 minutes of and then, you know, go do something else and then you come back and try and watch another 45 minutes of and then decide you're going to finish someday, make it an event. Like, Block out the windows, make the chips and dip, do whatever you got to do, go to the drink cart, get a, get a Coke, sit down, and then really lock in and, 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 you know, maybe even watch it with some people you love because that's what the movie is essentially about. You know what I mean? It's about the things that we share with each other, these experiences that we share with each other as we're growing up and as we're trying to go through life. And I would just say that even if you can't replicate the exact ideal circumstances under which you should see this movie, I would, I would highly recommend trying to make it as special an occasion as you possibly can. I agree, and I don't want to be a snob about this. And I am generally for the democratization of art and culture. I think it is ultimately a really good thing that a movie this beautiful and human and powerful and exceptional is available to as many people as possible. I think that's that, that there is, isn't really a downside to that. I, what I want to articulate, if I can, is that it's just really wonderful to maximize the experience. It deserves it. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that most people, I think, when when they hear these conversations happening and as they've sort of been following along with the debate about how to best see Roma, which Corona himself has said, like, obviously, ideally, you would see it in a movie theater. But I think we assume that we're talking about replicating or having the, the... the best possible experience visually. And in fact, I think that the reason why it's such a valuable movie to see in a movie theater is because of the sound. It's because it's so hard, you know, unless you have, say, um, you know, like some sort of home theater system, like like a Sonos or something like that, and you're really cranking it and you've got the, the wraparound sound going, you're not going to get the same experience as you would in a movie theater. And this movie is as much about sound as it is about uh, image. To I, I totally agree. I mean, Quaron even people who have not loved all of his movies have always said what a master technician he is. And it filled me with such joy to see the kind of technical mastery that was put to good use in Gravity, uh, which even if people didn't buy the movie emotionally, I think people were very impressed by technically. To see that level- Did you buy Gravity emotionally? Were you in on that? Yeah. I love that movie. I did, totally. But I think that to see this level of- contemporary technical artistry, not just like framing and lighting, which matters too, but a deep understanding of, of you know, there's CG in this movie, but we don't notice it, right? I mean, I just think to, to turn those abilities onto such a human story is really inspirational and wonderful. But I love what you said about sound, and I agree. I saw it here in LA at the Vista Theater, an old theater. The sound was an absolute knockout. And that really matters in general. If There are people who are much more cinematically snobby than I am who will always tell you that it matters. And it 
Of course it matters because they're, you know, I, I met someone I was working on Briar Patch. There are, there are brilliant technicians. This is what they do. This is what they think about and what they care about. And all movies and TV are better because of them. But some movies, you know, you're still going to enjoy your best version of it. And that's okay, even if it's on the back of a seat on an uh, airline flight that is not the airline that Chris just flew. But for me, and again, everyone's experience with this movie is going to be different, but Mexico City is my favorite place in the world to visit. I have many dear friends there. I have many memories there. I love traveling there as much as possible. And this movie sounds and physically feels like a place uh, to a degree that I think is almost unprecedented in my experience with movies. The, The movie opens, and again, this is another testament to why you should probably see it in a theater where you can't get up. I mean, it opens with a sort of hypnotic, soapy water going on the uh, cement floor of a of a garage just over and over. But the way that floor sounds when people step on it, when water hits it, the way the doors close not quite all the way and the walls aren't quite thick enough and you can tell that the, the cold of the evening is going to seep in even while it's not going to do much during the heat of the day, the sounds of the streets, the dogs barking. Like This is my experience sleeping in my friend's apartment in Chapultepec in Mexico City. Like I, I felt it and I felt it before the movie even started and that was so thrilling. And even if you don't have those specific memories, it's going to speak to you and transport you in a way that is worth experiencing. Yeah, you know, I mean, the genius of this movie, and we can start to get into the more plot points in a second, the genius of this movie is the foregrounding of the mundane, I guess. You know, even though the things that... There are a couple of extraordinary things that happen in this movie, but for the most part, it's this uh, really, really huge depiction of small details of a life. And even, you know, even if it's something as, as mundane as the daily cleaning, the daily cooking, toys the kids are playing with, a night out at the movies, even the big things with the exception of some of the sociocultural upheaval that's happening in the middle of the movie, even the big things like the getting pregnant, losing a husband, going on a trip, things that you'll remember probably for the rest of your life, you know, against the sort of typical movie fare don't really seem as, as big, especially since we're conditioned now for the most part that the stakes in movies have to be the end of the world or nothing. So I think that was the thing that I appreciated the most was the way in which I was so emotionally invested with in, in not like it wasn't outcome based. It was process based. And that's, that's what this movie really uh, did for me is you just sort of get lost in it. You know, you just kind of like float gently down the stream with this movie, even as it has so much to say about the way we treat one another and the way people live in a city and the way different kinds of people live in one country. It's just an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. I think we get away from that a lot, but I think that especially in today's um, blockbuster obsessed era, both on, in, on, on TV as well, you know, though it means something different on TV. I think cinema is the greatest instrument for uh, exploring actual lived-in life, um, the life that happens in between moments of upheaval, in between uh, history. And through, the, through real life, we can better understand those, up, those moments of upheaval and, th- and that history. And this movie is a really bracing reminder of that ability. Um, obviously, this movie will play very differently to people who are from Mexico City or from Mexico, who grew up in this era, who grew up the children of people who survived this era. But I think that it is universal, the idea of, the, as you said, the mundanity of existence in the face of extraordinary circumstances. And so for people who don't know the full story, it is a, I think he's admitted, a deeply autobiographical film of Caron's 
upper middle class upbringing in the beautiful Colonia Roma neighborhood of Mexico City. It's a neighborhood that was home to a lot of families like his. Parents were professionals, would live in help. Beautiful old classic style buildings. It was a neighborhood that was really ravaged by the earthquake that happens happened about 10 or 15 years after the events of this movie, and then in the last 5, 10 years has been reborn as a hipster paradise. Um, as people and do you, do you, like, would you say that now is the architecture much different than the one that we see in the movie since the earthquake, or is it pretty much the same? No, it's it's the same. I mean, it's, it's just a stunningly beautiful neighborhood, but a lot of the buildings, the older buildings, were foundationally unsound after the, after the earthquake. And so a lot of families left the neighborhood and bad elements moved in. Um, now it's been reclaimed. And, you know, a few years ago, there were just these is sprawling um, houses and buildings that were just, you know, like four floors with an art gallery and a pulqueria in the basement. And now it's, you know, it's, it's a very, there's a lot of money there now. So it's a lot trendier, but a lot of, uh, there isn't that same sort of freewheeling spirit of discovery, but it is a beautiful, beautiful neighborhood architecturally and in terms of its spirit. It's set during 1970, 1971, which is a period of great political upheaval in Mexico City. And what's stunning about it, and maybe this is the point where we begin to slowly sound the air horn, is that it is as at once a, as you said, I'll say it again, sort of mundane recitation, evocation of childhood and of a, of a childhood in a specific place. But it is also in a way that is so hard, I can't even comprehend how he did this. It's so delicately done. It is a, it is at once a, a, a recreation of it, but also in a way an examination of it. And on some level, it not apology isn't the word, but in an attempt to understand better who really bore the burden of what was happening in the world. And it's a movie about a privileged young man who has grown up relatively privileged and has had an incredible career. Going back and, and thinking about who held his life together to allow him to, to succeed. And it was primarily the women in his life. And that was his mother. And more importantly, at least, you know, moving from the autobiographical to the fictional, the character in this film, Cleo, who is an indigenous woman who is the live-in housekeeper for the family. And it tells the story through her eyes. And it is pretty astonishing the way it does. And, and, and it's grounded in an incredible performance by Elitza Aparicio. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking about, and I guess Kaya can, can smash the spoiler air horn here, is the way in which it depicts how everyday life can be an adventure. And I think that, like, that's something that I kind of, uh, I wouldn't say I long for or that I, I really miss, but I think that... Um, I think we're closer and farther than ever before to the rest of the world. So I feel like I can look up pictures of the neighborhood that we're talking about right now on Google image search and in Google maps and see satellite photos of this neighborhood and, and, and go down every street with the digital video and, and look up on YouTube, people taking tours of, of Mexico city. And I can feel like I have this connection to it, but I'm not really talking about visiting a place as much as the way in which there wasn't a, Time in the world where any street corner you turned could be a whole new world. And I think you and I have talked about this a little bit with New York and feeling mm -hmm. like this, like that was kind of always the attraction and draw uh, of New York for us. Um, was that feeling like you were, you were really, you know, always about to turn into something completely new. And, you know, Clayla has like very, very, very difficult life. Like she has to work essentially constantly and bear the brunt of frustration for uh, the family that she works for essentially. Like she's like almost there 
Sin Eater in some ways. But one of the things that I loved about this movie was that feeling of discovery, both for her and for the viewer. So that when you turn a corner in Mexico City, you see this giant avenue, or you see this teeming movie theater, or you see life just exploding from every single like centimeter of the frame. It brought me back to that time in my life where I felt maybe a little bit more prone to wonder. Yeah, it, it, it seems reductive to say this, but when you see something you haven't seen before, the physical experience of that emotion uh, in a movie theater or you know potentially again in your on your couch after having a setting up a great sound system whatever it's really why we do this and why we chase this stuff and there are a number of moments in this movie particularly when they're running down the street through the neighborhood which again the recreation of era is just I, I I don't know how they did the magic trick and I almost don't want to know but also moments when characters like Cleo are in movie theaters you know obviously this is Quaron's vision, so cinema plays an outsized role in his own experience and the experience that he gives to his characters. But yeah, the idea of uncertainty and seeing is really powerful in this movie. And I'll take it a step further, which is to say, the movie does a really incredible job of unsettling you even in moments that don't, um, in moments where you're not anticipating that. And I think that it, it, it says something profound about life in general. It also says something profound about the differences in experience where, you know, from my own privileged childhood growing up, not far from Aramingo Avenue or wherever you were today. Um, <laughs> there, a a stone throw. There's, there, there, you know, I, obviously I, I think about this a lot anyway because of what's going on in the world now and because I also have children, but also the, the 80s and 90s is relatively stable times in retrospect. But in this version of Mexico City in Cleo's life and in the lives of the children, even at moments where things seem calm in places that ought to be calm and safe, uncertainty can strike and chaos can overwhelm you. And I, I don't remember being as viscerally afraid, honestly, in a film as I was when an earthquake hits. Now, earthquakes hit Mexico City a lot. Like my friends call me and, or, or text me and be like, that was a bad one. We had to pull over. Um, that is a fact of life there. You know, but similarly, the moments when the people are just shooting guns in the countryside or there's a fire. Um, if you are listening to this and like me are lucky enough to have lived life mostly free of terrors of earthquakes and fires. Now I live in California, so I no longer share that. But of, you know, people being gunned down in the street in front of you, this movie does an incredibly artistic job of, of articulating what it is like to never be too far from wonder or fear. Yeah, and also to sort of have, like, regular life going on parallel to that, right? Yes, right. Life isn't stopping. Um, You know, one of the major set pieces of the film involves shopping for a crib while clearly something is brewing outside, and then, you know, and then um, a riot breaks out. Incredibly violent and historically scarring riot in Mexican history breaks out outside of the department store. Um, People are just doing, leading their lives when these things happen around them, and the movie communicates that in such a devastating way. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm not really sure where else to go with this. It's it's like, it, one of the things that's sort of fascinating is that this has, like, been a really good year for uh, foreign films. I feel like people, like, uh, Adam Neiman has written extensively for The Ringer about a lot of uh, really great work coming out of Europe and beyond, uh, whether it's uh, Burning from Korea or uh, Zama or, you know, there's just a, t- a ton of stuff that's really been catching people's eyes that's going up against 
uh, anything that we've got in the in the states this year. Uh, and it, I, I think that one of the things that I hope happens as a, a kind of after effect of Roma is that a lot of people are kind of curious to see more movies like it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not. It, it, it's interesting. There's the the sort of pie in the sky optimist version of what Netflix is doing would be that allowing people easy access to a film like Roma is a natural next step from people binge watching Parts Unknown or something, right? There is a there is an intellectual and emotional curiosity that shows that are easily bingeable and accessible in gender that might lead to further journeying, you know, and maybe the algorithm can help us with that or whatever. But I mean, personally, obviously I'm the, I'm in the tank for both of those things. So uh, that connection makes sense to me, but yeah, the, the version of, of the world that Netflix, at least for PR reasons spins. And I, I mean, I have no reason to doubt their intention. I just, you know, whoever it's such a monolith, Um, a world where, everyone who has a Netflix subscription has access to the nominees or the movies that are considered for best foreign film. That's a better world on some level, right? Because, I mean, even on a very basic level, if you if you sit down and watch Roma and you haven't traveled to Mexico or you don't have a fixed opinion about Mexico and, and you live in America at this moment when Mexico is spoken of in very, very uh, hostile and fear-mongering terms— the, the mundanity of aspects of this world and the universality of it are going to be very, very eye-opening, right? This idea that it, not just the the relatively, you know, luxurious existence that they had in this in this house in Roma, but Mexico is a multicultural society in a way that has, presents its own challenges, and they have their own blind spots in terms of treatment of indigenous people and the class structure that's sort of systemic in the life. These are issues that we talk about in our country. These are universal issues, and it's presumptuous to think that only we can tell stories about them or that other people don't have their own, other nations and other people don't, an artist don't have their own ideas to put forward. And ultimately it's, you know, look, this, this, this movie moved me so much that I'm, I'm speaking about art in these very like aspirational, optimistic terms, but that's, what good, that's what good it's movies the can do. Point of the, 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 the great accomplishment of this movie is that it's supposed to, I think it really is supposed to inspire people. Can we just talk about Quaron for a second? Because I truly think it's incredible that he, has the skill set that he has and and used it to do th- this. I don't mean it of, as a slight against his career because he's always been such a bravura technician. And, you know, Children of Men is, is an incredible film. Gravity is an incredible film. I'm not dinging those to say that I think this is something else entirely. It, 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 this is a movie that looks backwards in terms of its subject matter. It's a period piece. It looks slightly backward in terms of its ambition, because it is just pure classic cinema, right? I mean, it's in black and white. It's about, it's a little bit of a origin story for a, a life in the way that old-fashioned Hollywood smart movies strove to be. But it's forward-looking, too, in its inclusion, in its humanity, but also in the technical precision and wildly contemporary effects that it uses to pull it off. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, all right, well, we hope everybody goes and checks out Roma, if they haven't already, uh, be it on Netflix or in the theaters. And we'll be right back after a note from our sponsors to talk about stuff that we are going to try and catch up on during our holiday break. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system. 
let me tell you guys something personal here. I love watching television at home, obviously, but I have some issues because sometimes when I'm watching television, I have children who are sleeping and I need to control the sound very, very specifically. Thanks to the Sonos Beam, my sound experience on my TV is 100 times better. Now when I listen, I don't need to crank it up sometimes and lower it other times to avoid waking someone up and I don't have to worry about missing key lines of dialogue or play-by-play if I'm watching the Sixers. The Sonos Beam is the best way to experience theater quality sound in the home. It lets you play everything you love from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more. You can even use AirPlay to enjoy sound from your iPhone or iPad on the Sonos Beam. And it's all with that classic Sonos rich sound that fills the room. You can enjoy deep bass, detailed stereo separation for music, plus crystal clear dialogue for TV, which I'm telling you is more important than you realize, and for movies. All it takes is one chord to connect Beam to your TV. So, what do you got to do to hear about this and to experience it for yourself? I'll tell you. Go to Sonos.com. That's where you can learn more. And that's where you can order your Sonos Beam to experience life like I do, like Chris does, and start your home sound system and make it smarter today. That's Sonos. S-O-N-O-S.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dark Sacred Night. That's the new number one bestseller from author and Los Angeles native Michael Connolly. This is exciting. I love it when books sponsor us because we love books. Have you guys heard about Detective Harry Bosch? Harry Bosch is the dude. He even has a show called Bosch. I love Harry Bosch books. This is another one. They're all terrific. In this book, veteran Detective Harry Bosch partners with Renee Ballard, who works the LAPD's Night Beat to solve the brutal murder of a teen runaway. The case unfolds with a furious momentum. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Dark Sacred Night is, quote, one of the best and most affecting Bosch novels since Connolly began. That's no joke. Dark Sacred Night is Connolly's 21st Harry Bosch novel, as well as his second novel to feature Detective Renee Ballard, who first appeared in last summer's bestseller, The Late Show. Titus Welliver, star of Amazon's hit TV drama, are you ready for it? Bosch reads the audiobook edition of Dark Sacred Night with an appearance from actress Christine Lakin as Renee Ballard on the audio edition. This is awesome. You should be reading more books. You should be reading more Bosch books. Don't miss the novel that the Washington Post calls Darkly Brilliant. Listen to the audiobook or pick up your copy of Dark Sacred Night from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or whatever small local independent bookstore services you. Go to michaelconnelly.com. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y dot com to learn more. Bosh! Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home. Doorman service. It's an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or turndown service. An ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, turns down your lights and thermostat. Or even worry-free getaway service, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. All of it is controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice, and it's backed by 24-7 protection. Don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will DIFY do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Do you want to bring us back? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm going to host. Okay. Chris, Chris <laughs> says, because I'm hosting this episode, I have to bring us back from the commercial. So here we are. We're back from commercial. How many NyQuil's have you popped between our Roma conversation and now? I don't know. I just, there's all of a sudden there's just so many peanut M&Ms all over the place. <laughs> They're just rolling around like marbles. Um, <laughs> so 
We wanted to talk about, so as Chris said at the beginning, on Thursday's show, it's our annual The Wall. It's, the, it's our People of the Year, Artistic Contributions of the Year. Those are things that we watched and enjoyed and people that we loved. I feel like we could talk briefly, and we haven't prepped this. I have two things in mind. You may as well. Things that we have not seen yet, but we feel that we ought to. And one for me is I think I'm going to spend, try to spend some time over the next few weeks watching HBO's My Brilliant Friend. Have you watched this at all? I have watched a few episodes, yeah. You have? See, this is what happens because uh-huh. yeah. Chris actually well, watches this. My wife was writing about it for New York Magazine, so I was on in the house. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. She's had a, like, very... She's had a long, like, process with those uh, Elena Ferrant books because I think she, like, grappled with their... Uh, popularity versus her initial reaction to them. But I think as she's given it more and more time, she's come to really adore them. Yeah, so these Ferrante novels are fascinating to me. They are a total literary phenomenon, and they've missed me entirely. And they're published by Europa Editions, which is weird. Like, I actually, that's my favorite publisher. Yes, I know that's a nerdy thing to say. They publish generally, like, I will buy their books because they're almost always good, especially in their World Noir series. But these are far and away their bestsellers. I've not read them. They're written by a pseudonymous writer, right? Her name is not Elena Ferrante. We don't actually know her real name. And they are painstaking, detailed memoirs, or not memoirs, uh, it's it's fiction, but about uh, young girls growing into young women and women best friends in Italy. Is that fair to say that's correct? That's the reading of it? Yes. Yeah. And so HBO, they were global bestsellers, and then HBO and Italian television partnered to make this show. And apparently it's fantastic. And I was caught in this place of, I still felt maybe I should read the books first, but I think I'm going to throw that away because everyone is saying these are exceptional just as television. What ultimately, I I mean, we should just bring her on, but like, what did did your wife, how did she fall on this? Because people are hitting us up constantly being like, why aren't you talking about this? Yeah, maybe this is something we could jump on in January. I would also check this out. She liked it. She liked it quite a bit, obviously. I think that her relationship with the novel, I mean, you know, it's the same thing that happens with any adaptation is that if you have a deep personal connection to the source material, you're always going to have a complicated relationship with the adaptation. So... You know, I, I think that she, I, I think she really, really liked it, but I think that it st- doesn't really quite live up to what she had in her head when she was reading the books. I, I think there's two kinds of literary adaptations where there's the kind where you really, it, they're almost impossible tasks because what you have to do is honor the intense, as you said, like internal passion that a legion of fans have for the material. And in that regard, it sounds like my brilliant friend has more in common with like Game of Thrones, honestly in that it was a whole world for people that that really consumed aspects of their lives, and now here's a different version of it. It somehow seems to have succeeded. Fans seem to really like it. The other version of a literary adaptation, I guess, would be like um, Little Drummer Girl, where it's like 30, almost 40 years on from the book. It's been adapted before. We're just going to do a hard, tight diamond of our version of this. And Yeah, and it has such a, uh, like a heavily stylized spin on it that it, it feels like an almost a discreet... A discreet accomplishment from the novel, for sure. Is there opportunity in what you've seen from My Brilliant Friend for some light, light Neapolitan accent work on your part? I mean, I love a challenge. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, I've been I've been sort of stuck in the British Isles yes. for a really long time. And I think you and I and Mantukas all agree that I may have peaked with Richard Madden and Bodyguard, right? It, you know, it's not just him. We've received... Just we've received a lot of messages of support 
that really, it's not just that you've done a great Richard Madden impression, that you've really boiled down all six hours of The Bodyguard into one refrain. So it, it might not get better than that. It's hard to, you know, I didn't think that I would, coming into 2018, I didn't think that I would really learn to bring Bono and Rob Stark and the state of London's, you know, sort of Uh terror security situation together. But I did. I was able to do that. So you're welcome, America. Uh, For my thing that I'm going to try and catch up on, so did you have anything else you wanted to throw out there? I do, but we can go back and forth. Well, I have one that's essentially like a couple of things, which is, you know, I think that nothing sort of speaks to the impossibility of staying on top of things this year, like Netflix and the insane amount of stuff that they put out. And two of the things that people have been pinging me to to check out that I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks are two uh, international crime shows that Mm -hmm. they have. And Mm -hmm. number one is Money Heist, which is probably the thing that I get asked about the most, which I have not done at all. Spanish thriller of it is essentially about a group of people who try to rob what would be you know it's the mint it's like it's like they're trying to to rob all the money and it looks incredible i just haven't had a chance to check it out uh this is casa the de papel is right the house of paper that? casa de papel the house, yeah, of paper. house of paper and then the other one that i'm going to check out is 1983 which is sort of more of a uh, conspiracy thriller uh from poland which is about uh, a law student and a detective who are kind of uncovering a, a conspiracy in an alternative in an alternative poland like basically it's an alternative timeline that sounds amazing it's incredible to me that we live in an era of television where now with tv it is possible to just go pure genre and, and for us. And I don't mean pure genre like we're hype on Lord of the Rings. What I mean is there was a period like the beginning of this century where I think both you and I just fully stopped reading. And I say this intentionally capitalized important literary novels. And we were just yeah. reading Pelicano's paperbacks and just, or, or, and then everything else that, that we learned from, from those books and following down the rabbit hole of, of mystery writers, crime writers, thriller writers. And it was possible to choose a side, basically. And there was just simply too much to be reading everything. Now with TV, you could just be a crime fan. You could just go country to country, language to language. You could just do this on Netflix and just watch these things that are specifically for us. And I know that the most boring thing that I repeat on the show is about how I wish things were more universal, blah, blah, blah. And here I am flipping sides, but it's our podcast. I can do it. Like, that could be worse. Could be worse. Yeah. I mean, like, it definitely, it's like when you, the sensation of wanting something made for you, that that is a very unique satisfaction when you find it. Yeah, I never really considered how, I say that a lot, especially recently when we've been hearing about all these projects that seem literally incepted from your cerebral cortex. But (laughs) how much, frontier, yeah. But how much um, the first bar on Netflix of recommended for you drives everything that they do. That it's yeah. not just an attempt to sort of corral an unwieldy content library. It's really their goal. Their goal is to be able to say, here are the 16 things that we've made for you through our production partners all around the world. Um, because they want you mainlining this shit, right? Like they don't, it isn't really built for, you can do it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on there. But but systems like Netflix aren't really built for you to triple light fantastic across different styles and genres. Yeah. I would be curious to hear from other listeners. Like, so if you and I are like international heist thrillers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are some of the sort 
micro genres that other people are, are investigating over their holidays? And, and what are some of the micro genres that they've come across that are basically, uh, what's their algorithm called? No, that's actually, I really like this because I haven't considered it. And we actually don't know how many categories Netflix has internally and how many they offer. But let's fire up our Netflix machines tonight and copy down the first five bars. Because I know for me, it's, yeah, it's always like international whatever, food shows, comedies with strong female leads. Um, and it must yeah, get... Yeah, that's s- the thing too, because my wife and I share our Netflix, so it'll be like Fauda, Ozark, Money Heist, Kissing Booth. Yo, if you want to be real, real here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my wife on blast and say that she is not a fan of, it's not that she doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't have any, see any reason to distinguish between who's watching Andrew or kids. So I will be scrolling through. It'll be like salt, fat, acid, heat, money heist, Ozark season two, glow, Barbie's dream house. And I'm like, yo. <laughs> now I'm not saying my wife's watching that. There's nothing wrong with watching yeah. it, but I'm saying that when, when she doesn't switch off. Yeah. I'm saying that when she's firing it up for the other members of our household, she, I'm like, you're dragging down my rhythm. You're dragging down my algo, baby. Come on. So we're doing My Brilliant Friend, uh, Money Heist, 1983, and then what was the other other thing you were trying uh, to catch up with? You're going to hate this. Um, speaking of the other members of my household, Chris, I am really fired up for Mary Poppins Returns. Now, I'll allow it. I, do you have any relationship with Mary Poppins is here for the first time, as I'm now retroactively calling the film? That's what it's called? No, no. The it first, was Mary Poppins. Do you, yeah, I know. I was just saying, like, you know how, like, Star Wars became episode four later? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I have a relationship with Mary Poppins? <laughs> this is the podcast where we ask the tough questions. Um, I don't think so. I'm trying to remember if I was ever jacked on that. You know, I just, I, only child. You get jacked no on Mary sisters. Poppins? Yeah. Only, I don't know why I needed to distinguish that I had no sisters after saying I was an only child, but... <laughs> Just it wasn't really it wasn't really in the house a lot. It wasn't yeah. a big Disney house that I grew up in. No, I, I didn't really watch it a lot either. But let me tell you, I've made up for that in the last few years. <laughs> it's not only it is a wonderful movie. Um, it is wonderful in the ways all that Pixar garbage is not because it is not noisy. It is clever, entertaining, musical, relatively placid, and it's like three and a half hours fucking long. So. <laughs> You can just fire that bad boy up on an iPad on a cross-country flight, and everybody's happy. So it really ticks a lot of <laughs> crucial boxes. Um, and I'm excited about this movie because I love Emily Blunt. I love Lin-Manuel Miranda. I love Dick Van Dyke. Um, but I know nothing about—I'm intentionally not reading reviews— I'm intentionally trying to squash my own cynicism about why Disney felt the need to do this now after 50 years— um, and whether like Rob Marshall and these people are the right. You haven't been firing up the like what Mary Poppins' return means for Brexit? What, no, what concerns me is that is that Mary Poppins Returns um, didn't only consulted with Tony Lip's family and Mahershala Ali's character's uh, family was not consulted in the making of Mary Poppins Returns. So well sorry, that's, that's a deep, deep Oscar-shiving Green Book talk. Uh, uh, but no, here, here's the only thing I know about it. And our friend and colleague, uh, Sean Fantasy said this to me the other night, uh, which was, it's a kid's movie. Now, for Sean, I think that was Did kind of a negative. Did that with blood coming out of his eyes? Uh, no, it was coming out of his whatever. No, he, 
he, he, he didn't say it with the, with the venom I just it, put it into, I put into it. But there is an incredible, it, it, it is definitely there. I, I can put on a big boy hat and, see, and try to appreciate movies as like, just as, as art. Like I think, I do think Inside Out is a really good movie by Pixar. I have liked Pixar movies before. It's just that when I wear the hat I mostly wear, which is a child-sized beanie, I'm like, this shit is trash for children. I am happy that they may have attempted to capture that spirit. Now, it's hard to capture a spirit of childlike wonder a half a century later for purely cynical and commercial reasons, but I really hope they did do as he says and made a movie for children to enjoy because that is what it ought to be. And weirdly, we are way far away from that as a goal in most, most filmmaking these days. Okay, Mary Poppins, My Brilliant Friend, 1983, and Money Heist. That all seems doable. That seems so pretty we have, doable. We're just going to cram those in before True D comes back. When does True D come back? The 13th. Of January. Man, really getting <laughs> yeah, into it. 2019. <laughs> do you want to do a little temperature check on that for our audience? My temperature check is, um, is buy. That's my, that's my recommendation. Wow. I would conservatively buy the stock. I, I think that there are too many factors that are really leaning in its favor. Number one, first two episodes directed by Jeremy Saulnier, one of my favorite working filmmakers, director of Blue Ruin, Green Room, and Hold the Dark. Uh, Hold the Dark you can watch on Netflix. A little bit more of a chore than the other two, although the other two are quite terrifying in their own ways. Uh, but Hold the Dark I thought was really awesome uh, personally. Um, really great thriller director, really great understanding of atmosphere. This one is set in the Ozarks in the 19. 19- 80s, 90s, and in in the 2000s, so it's a three-timeline show, but it's going back to what made the first season so good, which is sticking to the perspective of the detectives themselves, rather than season two, which had lots of problems, but among them was probably uh, spreading all those pizzolato gems across four main characters, rather than keeping it as like a traditional detective know-thyself, kind of trying to figure out the crime. Uh, story. My goal in this podcast going forward still, and always has been, well, it has been since this aired, is to do the Colin Farrell Coke Bender episode of The Watch, like to capture the energy of that one moment. Not like, with, not with drugs. Are we of that, or actually we just drink Cuervo and listen to punk rock and destroy a studio? No, neither. Weirdly, I'm just trying to create our version of that, and that, and then we can be done. Like, that will be our... That will be <laughs> Remember when has like a fucking heart attack at uh-huh. the end of that scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look. That I, was ruled. When he's like gripping his <laughs> chest, I was like, Colin Farrell is a real one. Man. Colin Farrell is the realest one. And I still will ride for that character on otherwise uh, a, a disappointing show. But I'm excited that you are fired up. I think that I think that you have always run a clean ship when it comes to stock market prognostications in the culture business, you know? Yeah. I think, I think that you're, I think you're a trustworthy steward of people's hedge funds. I wouldn't say I'm Warren Buffett, but I do try to, I try to model myself off of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Where Um, it's like, I'm conservative. I don't throw my weight around, but when I believe in something, I believe in it. (laughs) What, what better way to say it? So I feel like we're wrapping up here. You probably have to go get a roast pork sandwich or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll be back on Thursday with a show that we recorded in person, and it's our annual episode, The Wall, People of the Year. We will then wish all of you 
or we should now. We wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holiday Season. We will be back with one new original episode in 2018 that will not be the Colin Farrell Coke Bender episode, but you know, we'll let you know. Uh, it will be a mailbag it'll episode. It'll just be the heart attack. It'll just be the heart attack. We'll go right into it. So, it'll just be Rob Riggle having a heart attack and stuff. But for 45 minutes with a break for a Sonos yeah. commercial in the middle. There's a call out now for mailbag questions for this final mailbag episode of the year. Let us know the name of your personalized algorithm. Yeah, I think that that's really, I th- I'm very interested in that. My personal algorithm is happy holidays and thank you to our listeners and happy holidays to you, Chris. Wear layers when you're in the cold and come back soon. It's a dead man switch <laughs> pick! Happy holidays, Baranskis! Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you fill the room with the rich sounds of everything you love, from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more. Trust me, if you're listening to this podcast, you need a Sonos Beam in your life. It'll make everything you enjoy, everything that you take pleasure in, everything that we recommend to you sound so much better. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system today. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, like doorman service. That's an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or even your children. Maybe someone else's children, too, if they want to visit. Or turndown service. That's an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, turns down your lights, and thermostat. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.